Today is Wednesday, November the 8th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the mind of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. YouTube's Limitations on Video Recommendations for Teens YouTube has recently implemented new product updates aimed at protecting teens by limiting the frequency of repeated video recommendations on sensitive topics like body image. These updates were introduced following YouTube's collaboration with the Youth and Families Advisory Committee, which includes psychologists, researchers, and experts in child development, children media, and digital learning. The committee has been advising YouTube on the potential mental health effects of repeated exposure to certain content on teenagers for several years. The new safeguards are designed to address the potential harm caused by a higher frequency of content that idealizes unhealthy standards or behaviors. Such content can have a negative impact on how some teens perceive themselves. By imposing guardrails, YouTube aims to help teens maintain healthy patterns as they compare themselves to others and navigate their self-image. YouTube worked closely with the advisory committee to identify categories of videos that could pose a problem if viewed repetitively. As a result, teen viewers will no longer receive repeated video recommendations for content that compares physical features, idealizes specific fitness levels or body weights, or displays social aggression in the form of non-contact fights and intimidation. In addition to these limitations on video recommendations, YouTube has also announced other product updates focused on the well-being of teens. These updates include more frequent and noticeable take-a-break and bedtime reminders to encourage healthy screen time habits. YouTube has also enhanced its Crisis Resource Panel, which connects users searching for queries related to mental health issues with live support from Crisis Service Partners. The panels now offer a full-page experience and prominently feature resources for third-party crisis hotlines. YouTube is also collaborating with the World Health Organization, that's WHO, 
and Common Sense Networks to develop educational resources for parents and teens, providing guidance on safe and empathetic online video creation and response to comments. These updates by YouTube may be seen as an effort to protect itself following a lawsuit filed against fellow social network Meta, formerly known as Facebook, for allegedly contributing to a youth mental health crisis. The lawsuit accuses Meta of knowingly rolling out features that promote harmful behaviors, including failing to remove content related to disordered eating and bullying. YouTube's proactive measures may be aimed at addressing similar concerns and demonstrating its commitment to the well-being of its teen users. It's worth noting that YouTube's limitations on video recommendations for teens in the United States will be expanding to other nations in 2024. The fourth largest cable TV company's CEO says cable TV is broken. Altice, USA, the fourth largest cable TV company in the United States, reported their earnings that included 77,600 fewer cable TV subscribers. Now the CEO, Dennis Matthew, opened up about cable TV and how the model is broken. During the earnings call, when asked about the Spectrum deal with Disney, Dennis Matthews said the model's broken. I just have to say that for the last 10 years, the consumers have made it clear that there is a significant shift from linear to streaming. And yet the costs for linear have continued to rise, and we as distributors need to find a way to work with our programming partners to put the customer at the center. We need to give them great value. These comments are very similar to what Spectrum said during its fight with Disney when the second largest cable TV company said the current model of TV is broken. Not only will it seem that cable TV is broken, but maybe also cable internet. Altice USA joined Comcast in losing internet customers with 31,000 fewer internet customers in the third quarter of 2023. This comes as increasingly cord-cutting 2.0 is seeing Americans ditch not just cable TV, but cable internet also. This comes as the two largest cable TV companies reported their earnings, giving us an idea of how fast cord cutting is growing. According to the most recent numbers, both Comcast and Spectrum have lost over 2.4 million cable TV customers so far in 2023. If this trend continues, the two largest cable TV companies could easily lose over 3 million cable TV customers before the end of 2023, with major TV providers still to report third quarter 2023 earnings, including DISH, the number of new cord cutters could skyrocket. According to the Lickman Research Group in 2022, all major pay TV providers lost about 6 million subscribers, with just Comcast and Spectrum possibly losing 3 million on their own of that number, and it may go up in 2023. The question now is how long can cable TV keep going with numbers like this? YouTube's ad blocker detection and EU's privacy law. A complaint has been filed with the EU's independent data regulator accusing YouTube of breaking EU's privacy law 
by not obtaining explicit user permission for its ad blocker detection system. The ad blocker detection system used by YouTube is believed to be a violation of privacy and illegal under EU law, according to the complaint. However, Google, the parent company of YouTube, denies these allegations. YouTube has implemented an ad blocker detection system to prevent users from using ad blockers on its platform. This system aims to ensure that users view advertisements on YouTube and support the revenue model of the platform. Under EU privacy law, explicit user consent is generally required for the processing of personal data. This includes the use of technologies that track or collect user information, such as ad blockers or ad blocker detection systems. The complaint against YouTube alleges that the ad blocker detection system violates EU privacy law by not obtaining explicit user consent for its implementation. Google, the parent company of YouTube, denies the allegations that its ad blocker detection system violates EU privacy law. Google has faced similar privacy-related challenges in the past. YouTube's crackdown on ad blockers is hurting the companies who make them. Multiple ad blocking companies say that thousands of people are uninstalling their products after YouTube started showing warnings to people trying to watch video on its website with ad blockers enabled. Since YouTube's crackdown only seems to affect people who access its website through Chrome on laptops and desktops, some users also try to use other browsers as a workaround. Ghostery told Wired that its installation of Microsoft Edge browser went up by 30% in October compared to September. YouTube's crackdown on ad blockers is lightly motivated by the need to protect its revenue model as advertisements play a significant role in supporting the platform. By detecting and preventing the use of ad blockers, YouTube aims to ensure that users view advertisement on its platform. Of course, YouTube offers a subscription plan known as YouTube Premium, which conveniently removes ads from the service for $14 a month. YouTube ads are increasingly contributing more to Google's overall revenue. The company sold more than $22 billion in ads on the platform from the beginning of this year through September. But the streaming platform is also trying to push more people to pay for YouTube Premium, which gets rid of ads, let people download videos, stream videos in higher quality, and access YouTube music. Users have also voiced their dissatisfaction with YouTube changes and the impact on their ad blocking experience. Some users have uninstalled their ad blockers in response to these changes. There have been discussions and complaints on platforms like Reddit and Instagram where users have expressed their frustration with YouTube's ad system and its impact on their viewing experience. This is just Big Brother increasing their ad revenue. That's called business. Canon's advanced chip machines to cost a fraction of ASML's best. Canon Inc. plans to price its new chip-making gear at a fraction of the cost of the ASML holding Envy's lithography machines. Seeking to make inroads in the 
cutting-edge equipment now playing a central role in the U.S.-China tech rivalry. The Tokyo-based company's new nano-imprint technology would open up a way for smaller semiconductor makers to produce advanced chips, now almost wholly the domain of the sector's biggest firms. Chief Executive Officer Fujio Mitarai said, The price will have one digit less than ASML's EUVs, said the 88-year-old, now on his third stint as Canon's president after last stepping back from day-to-day operations in 2016. He added that a final pricing decision hasn't been made. Veldhoven, Netherlands-based ASML, is the only supplier of extreme ultraviolet lithography tools, the world's most advanced chip-making machines, costing hundreds of millions of dollars each. The product of decades of research and investment, EUV rigs are essential for mass-producing the fastest and most energy-efficient chips, which cram millions of transistors into every square millimeter of silicon. Only a handful of cash-rich companies can afford to invest in the tools, which are now under scrutiny for their linchpin status in the tech supply chain. ASML is banned from exporting EUV systems to Chinese customers following the U.S. pressure on its allies to restrict technology flows to Beijing. That few hopes for Canon's new tools, which came to market last month. Tokyo's chip-making export curbs, which were expanded in July, do not explicitly name nano-imprint lithography. But Canon may not be able to ship the machines to China. According to Mitterai, my understanding is that exports of anything beyond 14 nanometer technology is banned, so I don't think we'll be able to sell. An official at Japan's economy industry said he couldn't comment on how export curbs would affect a particular company or product. Canon has been working on nano-imprint processes for almost a decade with Dai Nippon Printing Company and memory chip maker Keoxia Holding Corporation. Nano-imprint lithography is used as an alternative to ultraviolet and deep ultraviolet photolithography technology which is used in the most advanced semiconductor device fabrication. Currently, Netherlands-based ASML is the only supplier of EUV and DUV technology, the world's most advanced chip-making machines that are used for mass-producing chips below 7 nanometers. However, with the cost of EUV machines running into hundreds of millions of dollars, EUV technology is inaccessible to many of the smaller players in the chip market. Unlike EUV lithography, which works by reflecting light, Canon's technology stamps circuit patterns directly onto wafers to create chips at geometries it says are equivalent to the most advanced nodes, albeit at a much slower rate. The new machine gives chip makers the option to lower reliance on foundries while also making it more feasible for contract chip makers such as Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation and Samsung Electronic Corporation to make small lots of chips. The machines require one-tenth of the power of their EUV counterparts, Cannon said. Unlike conventional photolithography equipment, which transfers a circuit pattern by projecting it onto the resist-coated wafer, Cannon's new technology will instead press a mask imprinted with a circuit pattern 
on the resist on the wafer like a stamp. I don't expect nano-imprint technology to overtake EUVs, but I'm confident this will create new opportunities and demand, Mitare said. We are already fielding many inquiries from customers. Canon, which has until now focused on products used to make less advanced chips, began betting on nano-imprint technology in 2014 with an acquisition of Pioneer Molecular Imprints, Inc. Canon is building its first new plant for lithography equipment in two decades in a plant north of Tokyo to go online in 2025. The Meltdown of the Global Electric Vehicle Market The global electric vehicle EV market is currently experiencing a slowdown, often referred to as a meltdown, due to various factors impacting consumer demand and investor expectations. This slowdown is not limited to legacy automakers, but also affects industry leader Tesla. The primary issue at hand is a gap in the EV adoption curve, where the mass market is not yet fully interested in going electric due to concerns about infrastructure and higher prices compared to gas-powered cars. What are the factors contributing to the meltdown? Softening demand and automakers, including General Motors and Ford, have been pulling back their EV plans, citing a softening in consumer interest. The United Auto Workers strike have also played a role in this pullback. GM, for example, abandoned its earlier target of making 400,000 EVs by mid-2024 and postponed the production of its upcoming EV lineup to reduce production costs and increase profitability. Ford has similarly postponed and planned EV investments, including the construction of a new battery factory. After its electric vehicle unit reported a loss in the third quarter of the year. And then there's also affordability, or the lack of pricing parity, between EVs and gas-powered cars remains a significant barrier to mass adoption. Even with Tesla's ongoing price cuts, it is unlikely the company will have an affordable EV for the mass market till maybe around 2025. Affordability is considered a crucial lever for increasing EV adoption. And then, without a doubt, range anxiety and infrastructure. The limited infrastructure for EV charging and concerns about range anxiety contribute to hesitancy among consumers to switch to electric vehicles. The early adopters of EV were less concerned about these factors, but it will take time to convince the mass market to embrace EVs when these issues persist. Then there's inventory levels. While EV sales are still increasing, not all EV models are selling at the same rate, leading to higher inventory levels for some brands. This suggests that the market may not be as willing to buy every EV that is currently produced. The global electric vehicle market is currently experiencing a slowdown, with automakers pulling back their EV plans and concerns about affordability, range anxiety, and infrastructure playing a significant role. The gap in the EV adoption curve, combined with ongoing challenges, has led to a meltdown of expectations and stock prices for both investors and automakers. However, Despite the slowdown, EV sales are still increasing, 
albeit at varying rates for different models. EV battery replacement cost. The price of electric vehicles is still the biggest hurdle to most consumers considering a switch from gas-powered cars and they might not even be factoring in some of the hidden costs associated with them. Recurrent, which is a firm that studies battery health, surveyed 15,000 EV drivers in March and found that 1.5% of them needed battery replacements, which ranged between $5,000 to $20,000. The cost surveyed go back to 2011, and the vast majority were 6 years old or younger. The batteries are easy to damage, difficult to repair, or even assess. Tesla's Model Y battery has zero repairability after collision. Replacing a battery is so costly that it can often be more than the car's worth, forcing insurance companies to write them off. The average cost for the replacement of electric vehicle battery can vary depending on several factors, such as the make and model of the vehicle, the size of the battery pack, and the manufacturer. According to the various sources, the average replacement cost of an EV battery ranges from $5,000 to $20,000. According to the search results, the most popular EV model car sold today is the Tesla Model Y. It has consistently been one of the best-selling electric vehicles in recent years, surpassing other models in terms of sales volume. The Model Y has gained popularity due to its combination of performance, range, and versatility, making it a popular choice among consumers interested in electric vehicles. Like all other batteries, there is EV battery degradation when in use. The degradation of an electric vehicle battery can indeed affect the range of the car. As a battery capacity diminishes over time, the amount of energy it can store and deliver decreases, resulting in a reduced driving range. The range of an EV is determined by the capacity of its battery pack, which is measured in kilowatt hours. When the battery degrades, its capacity to hold a charge diminishes, leading to a decrease in the amount of energy available for driving. Consequently, the range that the EV can travel on a single charge is reduced. It is important to note that the rate of range loss due to battery degradation can vary depending on several factors, including the specific battery chemistry, usage patterns, and maintenance practices. EV battery degradation can affect the range of an electric car as the battery's capacity to store energy diminishes over time. However, manufacturers typically provide warranties that cover a certain percentage of battery capacity loss over a specified period, ensuring that the range remains within acceptable limits for a reasonable duration. The loss of EV battery capacity due to degradation can affect the performance and range of an electric vehicle. As of November 2023, Tesla's warranty typically covers a minimum of 70% retention of the original battery capacity over a specified number of years all miles driven. The Tesla warranty typically covers at least 100,000 miles or 8 years. The average person drives around 13,500 miles per year in the United States. This figure can vary depending on factors such as age, location, and individual driving habits. 
Some sources suggest that the average annual mileage per driver can range from 10,142 to 16,550 miles. According to a source from Edmonds, the average lifespan of an electric car's battery is typically around 8 to 10 years. However, it is important to note that this is an average estimate, and some electric car batteries may last longer or shorter periods of time, depending on the factors mentioned earlier. The cost of replacing an electric car's battery can vary significantly depending on the make and model of the vehicle, as well as the specified battery pack being replaced. Battery replacement costs can also be influenced by factors such as the availability of replacement parts and the labor required for installation. Additionally, as electric vehicle market continues to grow and mature, it is expected that battery replacement costs will decrease over time due to advancements in technology and economies of scale. In summary, the average lifespan of electric car's battery is typically around 8 to 10 years, but this can vary depending on various factors. The cost of replacing an electric car's battery can range from $7,000 to tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the make and model of the vehicle and other factors. It's, however, worth mentioning that the advancement in battery technology are continuously being made, which may result in longer-lasting batteries in future electric car models. Additionally, manufacturers also provide warranties for electric car batteries, which can offer coverage for a certain number of years or a specified mileage threshold. But researchers have found that pulverizing EV batteries extended the lifespan by 30%. Researchers in Korea are pulverizing battery anodes. They are not angry at the high-tech power suppliers. The smashing is part of what they claim is a cleaner EV battery recycling method that would become standard practice, according to the Korea Times. At issue are the expensive metals, lithium, cobalt, and nickel among them, that often require invasive mining to gather. While harvesting techniques for the metals are improving, recycling is an important aspect of creating efficiency and lowering costs in the growing industry. EV demand is on the rise as individuals, businesses, and governments recognize their unique advantages and importance as a more planet-friendly conveyance. Experts at the Korea Atomic Energy Research Institute said that by grinding battery anodes into a black powder, they can add chlorine gas to recover about 97% of the lithium, and the lithium and other metals are needed in battery chemistry to create charge and discharge cycles. Better yet, anode components made from recycled metals showed an increased lifespan, per the Times report, which noted that more than 40% of a battery's production costs are for anode materials. Another perk, according to the Times report, is less pollution at the end of the process compared to other recycling techniques. In other methods, battery components are heated to 1625 degrees Fahrenheit and mixed with chemicals before the crucial metals can be gathered. It's a process that results in inefficiencies and toxic wastewater, the experts told the Times. Conventional methods used so far have amalgamated or combined 
residual lithium following the heating treatment with other metallic components in ways that lowered battery quality and destabilized anodes. Kin Hyong Sub, an institute researcher who helped to develop the crushing process, said in the Time story. The researchers process uses chlorine gas to help separate the materials the experts want to recycle. When combined with other needed elements to create an anode, the team found the upcycle battery component extended the lifespan by 30%. The quality of EV batteries is determined by how much lithium anodes are contained, Kim said in the report. Kim told the Times that his team is perfecting the recycling method with the goal of onboarding the process with firms in Korea. However, the bigger goal is for the method to go beyond the country's border to become a guideline for recycling wasted EV batteries in an eco-friendly way. So, we're working towards extending the life of battery, and this would then give us a better range consistency over that lifetime of the battery. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, IT professionals, what's going on in the server room. And this week, I want to go back to a, a recent article that I saw, and, and it was talking about how IT professionals are taking longer to patch systems for critical security flaws. And this is a problem. This is a major issue. As long as a month to patch systems. And this is not supposed to be happening this way. I mean, hackers today, believe it or not, you may or may not have heard of something called Log4j. Log4j was two years ago. It was a zero-day vulnerability, and it was simply a logging tool that was out there. And they found this vulnerability. It was throughout everything. And they found this vulnerability, and they leveraged it quite quickly. And it continues to be unpatched in many locations, in part because it's difficult to patch, but in part because... People think, oh, we don't need to worry about it anymore. It's two years old. If, if anybody's still chasing after it, well, we're not going to be hurt too bad. Yes, you are. Yes, this is all bad. Because all of these different hacking groups, some of them are money-based, some of them are state-based. What do I mean by money-based? They're looking to make cash for themselves. A state-based it is no secret that, uh, I, I'm going to use Russia as an example, but there are other uh, countries out there where the hackers are backed by the state. You go, you work for Mother Russia, and you are a hacker, you know, and this exists. But they are now moving towards not only discovering new vulnerabilities, they've realized that they can attack not on zero day, but what's called N-day vulnerabilities. This is something that basically it's out there and the it, it's existed for a, a long time. It's a known quantity. So they're, they're attacking us on stuff that's already out there and we should have patched. We have seen this. 
multiple times some of the major items i mean you don't see it because a lot of this is behind the scenes it sits in it and everybody kind of their eyes glaze over oh it's another another virus it's another malware it's another in entry into our systems that just okay we don't care anymore as is, is the general populace we don't care anymore it's no longer exciting we i remember some of these different you know malware items that were publicized back in the the 90s and the aughts and they you know it's going to be the end of the world if you don't do anything and it made for great headlines but we've heard it so many times that it's like the little boy who put his thumb in the in the in the dike uh, so that Amsterdam wouldn't flood. So you, you've got the idea there. So we start looking at this. We start going, what what is it going to take? Well, these days it takes a concerted effort by a robust cybersecurity department. Well, cybersecurity is an amazing realm and it requires a, a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience. And there aren't a whole lot of people to fill shoes for that. It is one of the highest paying roles in IT that is available and they're just not well trained. Not all of them. There are there are some brilliant people and a lot of people in that field are there to keep the seats warm. Well, maybe not so bad. Maybe maybe not quite that bad. But everybody's learning this, and it's also a tough area because this is something that is so adapting so quickly that retaining knowledge is one thing, but you have to apply that, and you have to accept new knowledge at an amazing pace. So, yeah, this, this exists out there. So why are they taking so long to patch systems? It gets back to that core thing. Well, there are a number of different things that are coming along. It, it is time-consuming. It, it's not very easy to to just install a patch. You have to plan these things out. You have to test them out. But it also involves you checking to see if you're breaking anything. Is this cr- like a critical patch? Everybody starts screaming, oh, we've got this critical patch. Somebody can get in and they can leverage this and they can steal money out of your servers. It's it's not quite like that, but you get the idea. But which one do you give the highest priority to? I remember back in the day, we're going to take you back to the, uh, we're talking 1989 or so. Maybe it was 90. We surpassed 1,000 viruses computer viruses 1000 today the malware packages that come out in a matter of an hour are measured in the thousands there's variations on them there's it's it's not necessarily completely different but they are they are distinct enough so that we have to write different ways to fight them, to identify them, to name them, and so forth. This is all a world that is going to continue to move very fast because we are built on all kinds of different code that is left vulnerable, that's insecure, because we're also pushing our programmers faster and further to make things more exciting for us. And that all leads into a vicious cycle.
This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Reasons you may not need third-party antivirus software. A lot of computers come pre-installed with third-party antivirus software, but you may not need it as an average user. Antivirus software suites like Norton and McAvee have become household names at this point. A lot of hardware manufacturers like Dell and HP receive payment from companies like Norton to pre-install trial versions of their antivirus software onto these new computers. From there, most people end up subscribing to antivirus software that they probably don't need. Don't misunderstand me. Some form of protection is better than nothing. Cyber attacks are often are more sophisticated than ever, so it's natural to fear those threats and subscribe to antivirus software. But considering how built-in security has improved in Windows and Mac, antivirus software might not be worth the extra cost. Modern operating systems have built-in protection. Microsoft Defender is a free antivirus program built into Windows, offering features like smart app control and protection against vulnerable drivers. If Windows detects any suspicious activity, it will alert you and quickly start working to eliminate the problem. It will also let you know when you're downloading something that might risk your security. If you use a Mac as your daily driver, you don't need to worry much about antivirus software either. All Macs have sophisticated runtime protection that keeps your system safe from malware. Apple's computer also feature advanced antivirus software built into their operating system to alert you of any suspicious apps. If you mainly install apps from the Mac App Store, you have even less to worry about. Apple carefully reviews every app before it goes live on their store, so there's little to no chance of downloading something malicious. Antivirus software can get expensive. Third-party antivirus software suite have most of the features that you'll find built into your system, and a lot more. It sounds good on paper, but if Microsoft and Apple's built-in protection works well, is it worth paying for antivirus software over those built-in tools? Well, to give you a short answer, no. Like most digital services, antivirus programs have also shifted to a subscription model. This means you can end up paying anywhere from $50 to $100 per year or even more. Sure, it doesn't sound like a lot when you look at it from a per-month basis, but it's an unnecessary cost to owning and using a computer. A survey by security.org estimates that 33 million households pay for antivirus software. It is reckoned that a lot of people aren't even aware of all the features that antivirus software offers, so they're not even using it properly. Now, even if you do use all the features, that in itself is another problem. Most antivirus software offer unnecessary features. A lot of antivirus software companies offer features beyond basic malware protection to sweeten the deal. Most of these programs often feature stuff like cloud backup, a password manager, and even a VPN. Some even offer dark web monitoring, promising to monitor the dark web to ensure your personal information isn't floating around online. However, that all sounds great, 
But features like dark web monitoring doesn't really work that well. Sure, your antivirus software may be able to alert you that your information is leaked, but it can't remove it or do anything about it. As for the features that are actually useful, you can often just get them for free or cheaper elsewhere. Need cloud storage? Try cloud storage services like Google Drive or iCloud. Want a way to manage your passwords? You can use Bitwarden for free. We don't even need to mention all the VPN services out there that are incredibly cheap. Antivirus software can get intrusive. There has always been a popular myth that antivirus software slows down your computer. And there's some truth to it. While modern Windows PC and Macs are powerful enough to remain unaffected by the minimal performance hit, it's still an unnecessary performance hit nonetheless. And of course, on an older machine, the performance hit is quite large. The more concerning aspect is how intrusive these programs can be at times. For example, your antivirus software might block security features in other apps, distract you with unnecessary pop-ups and reminders, or even install browser extensions without properly asking for your consent. It can get exhausting to keep up with all this, and you're much better off just relying on your operating system's built-in tools without having to worry about any of this stuff. Let's say you understand that the problems involved with paying for antivirus software, but still appreciate some of the features. So why not try one of the many free alternatives out there? You get all the protection you need and don't end up paying a single cent. Unfortunately, there's always a catch involved with free software. Companies need to monetize their apps somehow, even if it's available for free. They might do this by collecting your private browsing data or stealing your personal information to sell to advertisers. Sure, there are a couple of great open source alternatives, but the majority of free antivirus programs are a privacy concern more than anything. Viruses aren't even the biggest risk these days. Antivirus software has been around for decades, so hackers and scammers already know that it's not worth brute forcing their way into your system. As long as you don't download sketchy files, you don't need to worry about accidentally installing malware on your system. The bigger concern is with social engineering, attacks like phishing. Today, hackers don't need access to your system files. They can just target your login credentials for your email, social media, and bank accounts. Most antivirus programs can't protect you against those attacks, so you'll have to rely on unique password phrases and two-factor authentication. Is third-party antivirus software really that bad? Well, let's make one thing clear. We're not advocating against antivirus software. We're advocating against how people expect them to save them from any type of cyber attack. If you have a system that's provided by your employer or school and it has antivirus software on it, there's a reason for it. Organizations often have different system-wide security needs and the risk of threat might be higher compared to personal computers or laptops. However, for the average person using their Windows or Mac system at home, investing in antivirus software for personal use is unnecessary. It's expensive. A lot of the features are nothing more than gimmicks, and most of the added protection isn't that great in the first place. You're much better off keeping your system updated, relying on the built-in tools, and be more diligent about your online security and privacy.
Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And what were you calling me just before the... the I, I called you Gifted. Gifted. Okay. And well, thank well, we're you, on I that think. subject, you know, uh, we, we do have a gift occasion coming up. Yes, a few people might have heard of Christmas. Oh, I'm talking about Veterans Day. Oh, Veterans. Okay, Veterans Day works too. Uh, Yes. Because on Veterans Day, (laughs) hey, people, you listen to this show and I know you try to ignore the rest and only tune in for my review segments, right? (laughs) Guess what? You'll, You'll have plenty of Marty for that week, yes. Two hours of show and most of it is going to be reviews in our holiday gift guide on november 11th and ben is gifted he's the first guy to point out that if you had a whole bunch of vertical lines it would look like 11 11 okay <laughs> so, I, I, you know at times the things you say just throw me <laughs> off like where'd that come from oh man we have dozens dozens of things you've never heard about on this show yeah, we have we have a couple of things that aren't here yet, and boy, are we coming up on that deadline! But yeah, I, yeah. I can tell you, the clusters of things that are coming to us because people wanted our audience to hear about them. Yeah, hey, yeah. praise to you guys because they love you. Yeah, exactly. As a matter of fact, so so let's give them an idea. Uh, I mean, you all you frequently cover products. You've got well, you've yeah, got something in mind right now. I'm sure. Well, the the being a geek, one of the things at the top of my mind is a device that turns your smartphone temporarily into a multimeter and an oscilloscope. Well, okay. So, also, so, it, so you get a you couple hungry. of leads off there, but yeah. it, it gives you the full details. I, I, or I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Go on. Yeah, I hear you. It's a great little thing. Uh, cookware. I mean, uh, how about a uh, double size dome shaped air fryer? Okay. Uh, we have some delightful snacks. Some dog toys. Where have we ever covered dog toys? Dog toys? <laughs> Are these high-tech dogs? Uh, never mind. I, 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 the little Sony dog. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, but let's start. Let's start with something that's got an edge to it. Okay. In the preparation yeah. of teas and so on from the cannabis plant. Trimming the leaves requires a steady hand and a special tool. And we had Cloudicious 9. Yeah. Starts with cloud, ends just like delicious. Cloudicious 9 sent their Trimcraft 9 electric trimmer snips. Okay. It's now these are unique. It's semi automatic, meaning you want to operate it one snip at a time. Mm -hmm. It's a precision trimmer. You know me. They designed it for one purpose, in this case, horticultural, specifically for a plant that's commercially trendy and uh, explosively popular. But I decided to try it. I'm sure I'm sure it would work on any kind of herbal substance, not just the uh, infamous one. Well, do you want to cut your dandelion at a doily? I suppose you could. Basil or or stuff. Okay, all right. (laughs) 
Well, I, I want to try it on, on some things that interest me more. For example, it's great for converting ordinary address labels into cable wrap labels. Okay. Okay, so you just snip them to be a little thinner, wrap around the cable, and then that's done. For cutting plastic screening into covers for speakers or fans or mm. microphones. Yeah, okay. Or trimming flexible plastic sheeting into exact fits to help add waterproof layers to things. Now, you can set the snips for a wide trim angle or a narrower precision trim angle. It's, it's pretty cool. It's a bright white LED work light on the thing mm -hmm, to help mm -hmm, you see what you're mm -hmm. doing. Uh, wall wart will power it, so batteries aren't an issue. Uh, the Trimcraft 9 from Cloudicious 9 is about 150 bucks at cloudicious9.com. Okay. All right. Moving on to the kind of anchor that never stopped a boat. <laughs> <laughs> but it sure helped our, our various IT gadgets continue on, yes. <laughs> yeah. The Anchor 511. Plug-in 5K power bank A1633. Boy, that's like giving name, rank, and serial number, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome to my learning curve. And I have a USB power device in my garage that's plugged into an AC outlet mm -hmm. that offers its own pair in that outlet of USB charging ports. And it works fine there. It just works fine mm -hmm. if there's power. But this is a blizzard belt. And power outages, <laughs> fact of life here. Yeah, so I bet. I asked to re review the Anchor 511 plug-in 5K power bank, meaning 5,000 milliamp hours, has fold-out prongs to plug into the outlet, one available on the USB-ported duplex outlet, and this can handle 20 watts of power. My device uses less, 8 watts, and that's only for 5 seconds at a time. I'm only worried about 50 of those 5-second long demands total during an outage. Okay. This power bank supports not all do pass-through charging, which means that it can power devices plugged in to the C port and keep it going. It's essentially a UPS for a USB-powered thing that has to live in the garage and has the right kind of battery so it won't freeze. It's about 20 bucks a dime, Amazon. That is, that's really good. I like that. I, well, I, I, I'm going to go check that one out myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club will have presentation of lightning talks. Thursday, November the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, November the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. Kings Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, November the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. Phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, December the 1st. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. 
Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, December the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is wpcug.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group will meet Thursday, December the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting, and the website is bcug.com. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.